The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Nathan Donnelly. He is with the Center for Biological Diversity based in Portland, Oregon. He works with the Environmental Health Program on issues surrounding the increasing exposure of both people and wildlife to toxins. He provides detailed scientific comments to the EPA on pesticide risk assessments and raises public awareness about our flawed pesticide regulatory system. He's also the author of a report that we'll be talking about today titled Toxic Concoctions, How the EPA Ignores the Dangers of Pesticide Cocktails. Before joining the center, Dr. Donnelly worked as a scientific researcher in the Oregon Center for Research on Occupational and Environmental Toxicology, where he studied the links between exposure to environmental toxicants and cancer. He earned his Ph.D. in Cell and Developmental Biology from Oregon Health and Sciences University. And his postdoc research focused on DNA-damaging agents, including aflatoxin and formaldehyde. He also worked on drug design and cancer treatment. Welcome, Dr. Donnelly. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, I love the report that you authored because I think it's extremely important for people to understand why and how products sold so freely in hardware stores and big box stores are actually not as safe as we might perceive them to be. But before we get started and diving into that report, why don't you tell me what led you to the Center for Biological Diversity? Well, that's a very good question. I think I have a very probably atypical path (laughs) that I've led. As you mentioned before, I I went to graduate school at Oregon Health and Sciences University, and there my thesis work really focused on how radiation and other chemicals that can damage DNA can in some cases lead to the development of cancer. And what we found was that exposure to radiation can lead to what is called hypermutability, which is basically an increase in the rate at which a cell accumulates mutations on its chromosomes. And after I got my PhD, I did my postdoctoral fellowship at the Oregon Center for Occupational Environmental Toxicology, kind of a mouthful there, where I initially focused on on chemicals that can damage DNA and lead to cancer. But what's been happening more and more over the years as uh, government funding has been drying up is that there's less and less money to fund some of these basic scientific questions that I was working on and that could eventually have have led to things like cancer prevention. And a lot of the remaining government funding of research, as, as well as industry funding, of course, has been trending more towards the treatment side of things rather than prevention. So my research eventually became treatment-focused, and, and I was doing things like drug design for cancer therapeutics. But ultimately, I became very frustrated with what I saw as a, a bias towards treating a disease rather than preventing it from arising in the first place. And 
I don't want to downplay the significance of cancer treatment research. It's it's impossible to prevent all disease from ever arising, and there's a lot of very bright researchers doing amazing things in the lab to make sure that we have the medicines we need. But for me personally, I you know I really felt that I could make a bigger difference at a place you know like the Center for Biological Diversity, where I could really focus on preventing exposures to chemicals that, you know, not only harm our health, but the health of the planet as well. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. That idea of preventing illness is exactly what led me to the field of dietetics. So we are on the same page. And I'm sure your reaction to then-Vice President Joseph Biden's moonshot to cure cancer was similar to mine in that, can we put some of this money into prevention and like you, I agree, my goodness, if someone has cancer, we absolutely want to be able to treat it and cure it. But let's go farther up the river and focus on prevention. So I'm glad to know we're on the same page. Let me ask you something. Now, I think biological diversity, for those of us who might have been interested in biology and we understand that terminology, it, it's common. But I think maybe for many of our listeners, we may not really fully understand what biological diversity is or why it's so important. So if you were in an elevator and you were trying to explain biological diversity in just, you know, a few seconds, how would you describe it? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's one we get asked all the time. So I just like to tell people to imagine a world where the only animals you ever saw were pigeons and rats and crows and, and cockroaches. That's a world that really lacks any sense of wonder. There's nothing special there. There's nothing that really captures your imagination. It's that diversity and that complexity that really connects us to the natural world, I think. And there are, of course, more tangible benefits to having a diverse species. For instance, having a wide range of mosquito-eating insects and birds and fish and bats really provides much-needed protections against mosquito-borne diseases like Zika and West Nile virus. And furthermore, sticking on the medical route, many of the life-saving drugs we use in modern medicine either came directly from the wide variety of plant and animal life we have on this planet or are based on chemicals derived from those species. So, for instance, paclitaxel, which is a common chemotherapeutic, was first isolated from the Pacific yew tree. And vincristine, another chemo agent, is, is derived from the Madagascar periwinkle. So all of these medicines really have roots in our diverse natural world. And I just want to end to say each ecosystem has plants and animals that have co-evolved over very long periods of time. And many of these species are absolutely reliant on one another. So when you start removing species very quickly through extinction or, or displacement, it weakens the entire system. So it's like, a, it's like a column or a pillar of stones. If you start removing stones from the bottom, eventually the whole thing just collapses. That's a great way to visually understand that. And of course, you know, biodiversity in the food area is the same thing. It's like imagine a diet where you just had foods that were based on corn and soybeans. And that's sort of the direction that we've been going in terms of limiting the diversity of the food that we eat. But we miss out on all of these health protecting nutrients. So 
again, how important it is for us to recognize that we need to protect the biodiversity in our system. And I think what attracted me to your report on toxic concoctions of pesticides is that I have become more aware in speaking with farmers, really, about how precious the soil microorganisms are. And we don't see them, we don't hear them, they're oblivious to most of us. But when we think about the health of the soil and therefore the health of the plants and ultimately animals and people, it seems foolish to be putting toxins on that soil that would ultimately affect the biodiversity of those soil microorganisms. So that is why your report was so appealing to me. Tell me how you became interested in looking at pesticides and the combinations of both the ingredients within single pesticides as well as the combinations of different pesticides that are applied. Yeah, that's, again, another great question. I sort of view this as a very under underappreciated issue. There's a lot of work that EPA does on single active ingredients, and that's where a lot of focus is. And since that is the ingredient that's on the label, that's where a lot of people place a lot of their focus. But when you start realizing that that single ingredient on the label is not all of the ingredients that are in the product, then you start looking at other chemicals that are out in our environment, like uh, pharmaceuticals and heavy metals and plastic additives and stuff like that, you start to realize just how much of a, a chemical soup we live in. And a lot of these chemical mixtures, their effects on the environment and people are just simply unknown. Yeah. You know, some may be totally safe and some may be very harmful. And without knowing what are the harmful mixtures and what are the ones that are really not likely to, to be of any consequence, we need information. We need data. And right now, the EPA does not take on that analysis. They really determine it to be too difficult to do. And so that ultimately puts us at a, a disadvantage when it comes to making informed decisions about our health and about the health of the environment. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about pesticides in particular. I've been told that the EPA largely relies on industry-generated research rather than that which is generated from independent researchers. If there are any more independent researchers, I know that so often, say, land-grant university research is funded by industry, so it's hard to find truly independent research. But what do you know about the quality of the research on which the EPA depends to make their decisions of approval or not? Well, I wish I knew a whole lot more. <laughs> right now, the studies that these chemical companies submit to the EPA assessing the safety of their pesticides are considered confidential business information. So scientists like myself, general public, do not simply have access to these studies. They're available only to the chemical companies that generate the data and to EPA scientists. So we really don't have access to the methodology that's used, the purity of the ingredients that are used. A lot of those things are really, uh, we're blinded to. And you can imagine when you have a, a company whose bottom line really depends on the outcome of a particular experiment, there is a significant financial conflict of interest there. And it's extremely worrisome that for 
many, and I would actually say most pesticides, the safety of those pesticides are that information is derived completely 100% from a lot of these chemical company studies. And so what ends up happening is that even when there are independent researchers that do research on particular pesticides, those data are not really analyzed in EPA's risk assessments. They are deemed of qualitative nature, so not of use for a quantitative threshold safety measurement. And so it ultimately, a lot of these independent studies find that the safety thresholds are much, much lower than the pesticide companies are finding. And those data are not taken into account with EPA's analysis. It's really frightening. And when I think about conflict of interest, you know, there's been so much attention to that lately, especially in the health world, where if the soda manufacturers are doing the research, they come out with a conclusion that's completely different from researchers who don't have ties to, say, soft drinks. And I'm thinking about obesity research in particular here. But I would think that because of conflict of interest, the EPA would not be allowed to use research that's generated by industry. That's not the case. The major pesticide law in this country, which is called FIFRA, which stands for the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, Rodenticide Act, actually directs the EPA to collect these studies from the pesticide companies because, quite frankly, they're the only ones who have the money to generate <laughs> the studies. Right. So it comes down to money, and the government doesn't have the money to fund this research, so they're really reliant on the pesticide companies, which is the only entity that really has the means to do this type of research. Yeah. Well, I was interested in the report that found that the percentage of recently approved multi-ingredient products that have evidence of synergy, 69%. Let's talk about synergy. Define that word for us. Yeah, so synergy occurs when two or more chemicals interact to increase their respective toxicities. So it can really turn what would normally be considered a safe level of exposure into one that can really cause considerable harm. And so in this case, the impacts could really be quite severe because when you only analyze single chemicals and you assume that as a default that chemicals do not interact, which is what EPA currently does, then synergy will result in more harm than what was originally estimated. Hmm. Well, that's concerning because there was a recent report in the New York Times, this was from last October, where Monsanto estimated that by the year 2025, corn seed will have traits allowing farmers to spray five different herbicides. And that's not including the effects of the chemical fertilizers that go along with this combination of herbicides. Yeah, absolutely. That's unfortunately the trend in the market right now. In the 1990s, farmers overused glyphosate to such an extreme degree that we have nearly 100 million acres of farmland in this country that has glyphosate-resistant weeds on them right now. And glyphosate just isn't cutting it for the farming community. And so what the chemical companies have convinced our regulators to do is to double down on this combination GE crop 
pesticide cocktail path that we're on right now, which is to combine glyphosate with other of these older, more toxic herbicides, which, by the way, glyphosate was supposed to replace. Now we're going to combine glyphosate with these herbicides and wipe our hands off and call it good. And so that's what we're doing is we're adding herbicides to the mix so we can kill some of the resistant weeds that have arisen. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see where this is going. I mean, weeds are just going to develop resistance to the currently used cocktails, and we're going to be adding more and more and more chemicals. And eventually, it's it's going to come to a head. And I have no clue why EPA has decided to go along with the chemical companies and the Farm Bureau's interests on this because it's really not beneficial to our society. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are joined today by Dr. Nathan Donnelly, Senior Scientist at the Center for Biological Diversity based in Portland, Oregon. And we are talking about his brand new report. Well, I, I shouldn't say brand new. It, it was published in July of 2016, but it's extremely pertinent today on the Toxic Concoctions, How the EPA Ignores the Dangers of Pesticide Cocktails. Dr. Donnelly, when you were putting together this report, I'm sure that there were parts of it that made you sit back and just say, oh my goodness, this really needs to get more press. How much press did this report get, and what do you want our listeners to know about what you found? Yeah, you know, we were expecting a lot of press on this because we knew this is a very important issue. But, you know, it didn't get a lot of press. It got very, very little. And I think ultimately the reason for that is this is an incredibly complex subject. And it's you, you have to speak in certain verbiage a lot to effectively explain it. And then a lot of people, their eyes will glaze over because it's not the most sexy topic by any means. Mm-hmm. Um But ultimately, it is very important. And I think what I would love your listeners to know about this is that, as you said before, nearly two-thirds of currently used pesticide products available on store shelves right now that were approved in the last six years are more dangerous than we've been led to believe. And that's scary. And I think it really highlights the single biggest flaw in EPA's pesticide approval process, which is that it completely ignores the effects of mixtures. The EPA does not analyze mixture toxicity to plants and animals other than humans. And the analysis they do for humans is completely inadequate. Occasionally with high-use products like Enlist Duo or products like that, they'll do some sort of acute toxicity testing. But that's really it. So with the EPA, a lack of evidence of harm equals no harm when it comes to mixture toxicity, and it's really just indefensible. Mm -hmm. And just for our listeners, Enlist Duo is the combination of glyphosate plus 2,4-D, and 2,4-D was one of two major ingredients in Agent Orange. So sometimes people hear Agent Orange crops, and they hear these names, and I think it's important for us to understand what these chemicals are, where they came from, why the risk, and why we shouldn't just be applying them under this message of we need these combinations to somehow feed the world while our rural populations are really suffering the harm as well as our watersheds. Yeah, that's the 
a myth that this is is needed to feed the world. But if you look at if you look at the genetically engineered crops that have these herbicide resistant traits, we're looking at corn, cotton, soy, alfalfa, sugar beets. First of all, I don't know anyone who eats cotton. Alfalfa is used mainly to feed animals. Corn and soy are eaten by people, but the vast majority of these crops are eaten by livestock, and in the case of corn, to produce ethanol as a biofuel and sugar beets. I don't know any starving people around the world who have the benefit of having access to sweetened foods. So these crops aren't feeding the hungry. They're they're feeding the rich, you know, people who can afford to eat meat, those who can afford to drive cars, and, and those who want to buy sweetened foods. Are you able to present your report to agricultural conferences, extension offices, land-grant university-type gatherings where people who are training the trainers, where you have extension agents going out and speaking to farmers, for example, how can we extend the reach of this report to the people who really need to know about it? You know, that's a really... That's a really good question, and I don't know if I have the best answer to it. We've not been I, – I actually haven't presented these data at, at a conference yet. Uh, my time has been taken up by other tasks in my job, but, uh, you know, it's, it's absolutely vital that a lot of these state agencies and, and extension offices have access to this data because right now the assumption is that, well, if EPA approves it, that means it's safe. And that's not a correct assumption. First of all, EPA's analysis is very flawed, as I mentioned about mixture toxicity and, and other things. And second of all, EPA's analysis is not a rubber stamp that this is uh, safe. All it means is that the purported economic benefits of the pesticide were deemed to outweigh the health harms to humans and the environment. So it's really a the, the EPA approval process is not a, an indication of safety. It's a it's a cost-benefit assessment. So that these things are sort of said out in the farming community, oh, EPA approved it, it's safe. And that, that's a mentality that really needs to change. Exactly. Now, I noticed that the U.S. EPA Office of Inspector General did cite your report when they were discussing how EPA could strengthen its oversight of herbicide resistance with better management controls. How did that connection happen? That is a good question. You know, I was in contact with with someone from the EPA Office of Inspector General, and I I did uh, email them my report, so they had it. Good. Um, And, you know, I think they, they looked very favorable upon it, and they actually brought it up to EPA. And I was pretty underwhelmed at EPA's response. They basically said, yeah, we know this is an issue. We're looking into it. Give us two years. Uh, I mean, uh, all they really need to do is go to pesticide companies and say, when you are applying for the approval of your product, you need to give us any information you have on the synergy or the enhanced toxicity of your products. I mean, that's all that needs to be done. And I don't know why they're wanting two years to do this. And I, you know... Their initial response to this report was actually very encouraging because they had a, a new a new pesticide come up for approval and they actually looked at the patent data and they they prohibited certain tank mixtures based on the patent data. I mean we thought we'd gained a really good 
a good victory with that because if we can start limiting some of these tank mixtures, then we're going to be limiting, you know, the mixtures that you encounter out in the environment, in our water and in our soil. But ultimately, you know, the the response has weakened somewhat, and I'm quite frankly, I'm a little worried about what the response will be in two years because we have very unfriendly administration right now. Yeah, I'm concerned too about regulatory rollbacks and decreased funding. I normally recommend that people try to choose foods that are grown without pesticides. It always goes back to the single person. What can a single person do? And I think that's oftentimes why people get so frustrated with these kinds of reports is they feel overwhelmed by the problem. You know, what can they possibly do? When really the solution, yes, we can affect agriculture and food systems with our food dollars, but ultimately it does depend on policies that are much greater than single individuals. So I'm going to share your report personally with my elected officials because I want them to know about it, even though it didn't get a lot of press. I hope that all of our listeners will share this kind of information with their legislators so that we have greater interaction between our plates and who is making the laws that affect the quality of our food and water. Absolutely. You know, and I think I I always tell people to buy organic if you can as well. But in some ways I hate saying this because there are many people who either can't afford it or simply don't have access organically grown produce. So in a way, it's, it's not a decision that everyone has the ability to make. So there really need to be safeguards put in place at the federal level. And I think, you know, people can do this in, in many ways. You know, I think this is, with the reality of a, a Trump administration setting in, I know it can, it can be daunting uh, to think of, of the challenge we have ahead of us. But Really, I I am uh, excited for the future, and I think we have a lot of victories ahead of us, whether it's with public pressure or in the courts. You know, the next three and a half years really will not be a waste. And, you know, I encourage your listeners to keep the pressure up, and grassroots efforts on a, a state and local level are so important. And if you are too busy to get involved at that level, then then give support to to groups that are doing really good work and, and align with your values. That sounds great. That's a great send-home message for our listeners. Does the Center for Biological Diversity have a site where there are action steps for people on a policy level? Absolutely. We um, we have many action alerts on all sorts of, of areas regarding uh, environmental health, you know, global climate change, uh, human population increases, ocean pollution, environmental toxicants out in the environment, you name it. So, yeah, if, if, if your listeners would like to go to biologicaldiversity.org, at that homepage, you'll be able to find a little tab at the top that says uh, take action. Uh, it'll, it'll, um, it'll, it'll guide you to uh, our current action alerts that are up. And these go to, um, you know, anywhere from, from state and federal government officials to Sometimes, you know, stores that we're trying to put public pressure on uh, making more sustainable choices in their in their purchasing. That sounds wonderful. Well, in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. 
Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I also want to thank our guest, Dr. Nathan Donnelly, Senior Scientist at the Center for Biological Diversity based in Portland, Oregon. We will provide a link both to the Center for Biological Diversity as well as this terrific report, Toxic Concoctions, How the EPA Ignores the Dangers of Pesticide Cocktails. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you very much for having me.